The Florida Gators upset the Tennessee Volunteers in the Swamp last night. Tonight, we're going to recap it all and celebrate what was an amazing night in the Swamp and a game we will never forget. This is the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. And welcome in to another episode of the In All Kinds Weather Forecast. I am your host, Chris Yanes, alongside my co-host, Neil Shulman. And we may have uh, some hoarse voices tonight during the show, but that's because we were having a good time in the swamp, yelling at the top of our lungs on third down and screaming and celebrating those amazing touchdowns throughout the night. But before we get all that, make sure to like and subscribe to our show. Hit, Make sure you hit that like button, leave a comment, review our show. We've been really loving all the feedback we've been getting from our fans. So please continue to do that. Hit that like, subscribe, and, and share this with your friend group and your family to, to let them know where to get their podcast. Um, but Neil, last night was awesome. It was, I think, something that the fan base really needed. The fan base two weeks ago was reeling from a loss to Utah. They didn't know the direction of where the program was going. They were questioning Billy Napier, but we talked about it going into this game. You want to flip the script. You want to change the trajectory of where the program's going, or at least give some belief that things are headed in the right direction. We needed to beat a team like Tennessee and Florida did it. They upset the number 11 team, Tennessee volunteers in the swamp, giving Florida their 17th out of 19th, uh, 17th victory out of 19 tries, dating all the way back to 2003. The last time that the Tennessee Volunteers actually beat the Gators in the swamp. And now they're going to have to wait even longer, possibly, as we said. Now that they, it's going to be over, well over 20 years before the Volunteers ever get another victory in the swamp. So it was great that we were able to defend our home turf. And, you know, Neil, um, this is where I'll bring you in. Thoughts on the atmosphere, the stadium environment. It was it was it was electric and then there we can always point to moments where the crowd made a difference five procedural penalties against tennessee it's safe to say the crowd made a difference on saturday night well five procedural penalties two wasted timeouts on the first drive of the second half I don't even know what you want to call the the sequence at the end of the first half where there were 55 seconds to go and then there were 35 seconds to go and Tennessee had burned another timeout before third and six because they just couldn't hear anything. They couldn't hear themselves think. So you think about all the different ways that the Swamp impacted this game. But first, I want to touch on something else that you mentioned. The the fan base was, was reeling, you said, after the loss to Utah a couple weeks ago. And I want to... I guess somewhat pushed back on that in that it wasn't the fact that Utah scored more points than Florida that had the fan base in, in such a state of mind. It was the fact that Billy Napier and the coaching staff hurt the Gators. They hurt the Florida Gators chances to win the game with some stupid play calls, frankly, and an all time stupid penalty where you have two guys in the same Jersey run or same Jersey number running out of the field and giving Utah a free first down and just self-destructing, beating themselves and giving the other team a victory. And I think we saw the opposite in this game, which is, I think why the win feels so good. It wasn't that Tennessee self-destructed. I, I do think that they're a bit overrated. I don't think they were the 11th best team in the country, but this was a quality team. This was a very nice system that Josh Heupel runs. It was a quality opponent for sure. 
and it feels good for the fan base to see that, yes, we we beat our rival. We beat a top 15, 20 team, whatever you want to quantify them as. But we saw this coaching staff make adjustments. We saw this coaching staff do some things differently to put the Gators in a better position to win the game, which preceded the Gators winning the game. So it's that that sequence of events that I think has the fan base feeling so good. It's what has me feeling so good right now. And we'll talk all about what this does and the doors it unlocks and the 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 openings it creates for the rest of the season. But it's more about how the games played out, how the flow of the game went that led to the results of which team had more points at the end of the night that I think has the fan base feeling so good. It's certainly what has me feeling more positive about the rest of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're you're right. The the fans were were very frustrated with the coaching staff because now, I mean, look, I don't think Florida is a championship contender this season even after winning this game. However, they certainly look like they are a competent football team that can go out and execute a game plan to perfection. And it was frustrating to see that they weren't able to do that against Utah effectively mainly because the coaches put the players in that position to fail. Like you said, last night was the complete opposite. They came in here, they had a game plan, and they executed it to profession, especially in that first half, you know, tallying almost 300 yards of total offense and a very balanced attack both through the air and on the ground in that first half, scoring 26 points, forcing the first turnover of the season by getting pressure to Joe Milton, which, you know, lobbed the ball up there for Devin Moore to pick off and return into the red zone, which Florida cashed in a touchdown there. And I love that the team didn't back down. They went right down the field. The first game actually converted a couple of third downs. And, and uh, unfortunately the, the, the field goal unit, We'll talk about special teams later again. Didn't convert, and we saw a change in this game at kicker eventually, but Tennessee went right back down the next drive, scored a touchdown. You're like, okay, well, how do we respond? We got punched in the mouth, and Florida responded right back in kind. A huge run by Trevor Etienne, the 62-yard run. They got the crowd back in the game. Didn't make the extra point. That's what led to the change. And then, you know, Florida got the ball back, got some stops on defense, Scored again, got the turnover, scored again. And before you knew it, it was 19-7. And then Florida was able to make it 26-7 by halftime. And I mean, at that point, it, because of the way the defense was playing, the crowd was in the game, the atmosphere was electric. It was very difficult to foresee a comeback in the making for Tennessee. And they tried. They definitely tried in this game. And Florida went very conservative in the second half. But a great, great game plan executed to perfection by the team. And this just has to give confidence moving forward. But to wrap up on that thoughts on the atmosphere in the stadium, you know, I, I think nights like these, when you have 90,751, that was the announced crowd at the game. And you see that sea of blue, you see what that crowd can do and affect the game. It has to make the administration wonder what they're going to do for this upcoming renovation, Right. The fan base has has definitely, I think, voiced their opinion that they want to have that atmosphere that we had. And it's a balancing act. Florida has to do things to make the stadium more accessible, make it more fan friendly and improve the experience. But the top experience is being in that stadium, making a huge difference. So, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts might be on that, but I mean, this has got to continue to beg the question, what are we going to do moving forward? with the stadium renovation, because I think when you, you, you really want to preserve that noise in there. You're setting me up to say something that the, that the administration isn't going to like, um, keep I mean, it PG. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you know my thoughts. You you know the you know all the reasons why I'm against shrinking the capacity too much. And 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 I'll say this: it's going to be impossible to put chairbacks in every row. So having having sat there now two weeks in a row, having it fresh in my mind, actually looking for that. Obviously, I went to a lot of games last year and the year before that, but now paying specific attention to the idea of can we logically put chairbacks in here. The answer is hell no. There, there is not a possible way to do that. So I, it, it's too steep. So I don't foresee the university doing that to take seats out. But I do, I do fear that they will make the aisles wider than they maybe have to. They will do too much to the to the guts of the stadium to like its its intestines, I guess, to just ruin the atmosphere by taking out more seats than they really have to. So. I hope we stay north of 80,000. I think removing any more than 8,000 or so seats would be a catastrophic mistake by the University Athletic Association that I hope they don't make. But there's a happy medium here, as you said. Keep the atmosphere. Do what you got to do to keep it ADA compliant. Because, again, the argument there is any one of us could get in a car crash tomorrow and break a leg and all of a sudden – now we're going to want it to be ADA compliant, whereas the day before we couldn't possibly have cared less. So there is, you know, there is a logical reason for them to do that beyond just having to follow the law. So I'll put that out there. But yeah, I mean, the Swamp won this game, Chris. The Swamp won this game. I I think very, very strongly that if this game were played on a neutral ground, this game were played in Atlanta, this game were played in Charlotte, this game were played in, I don't know, Birmingham, I think Tennessee wins. Because I don't think that, especially if we call the second half the way we did, I think that, that that loses the game for us. And I think the Tennessee maybe doesn't have some of the procedural issues that put them back behind the eight ball in some down and distance situations. And I think that they would have been able to come away with the win in the end. But the Swamp put Florida over the top in this one. And we can discuss all the X's and O's in a minute. But Gator Nation, you, you guys were fantastic. You, I mean, that, that cannot be stated enough times. You guys showed up in huge numbers. 90,751 strong, the overwhelming majority of which were Gator fans. There were some Tennessee fans there, but most of them were Gator fans, and you guys helped give Florida the win. So great job, and, and let's keep it going because we got some more home games coming up that we need. Yeah, and two weeks in a row. I thought two weeks in a row the crowd really did show up, and and hopefully they 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 respond in kind once again next week, even though it is a more inferior opponent in Charlotte, Florida, right now a 24-point favorite against Charlotte. And they'll be going into that game a top 25 team. As the AP poll came out this afternoon, they are the number 25 team in the country, cracking the top 25 for the first time since we lost to Tennessee last year in Knoxville when we were ranked 20th at the time. So a full circle moment back in the top 25. It's got to feel good. And yes, it was a big part because of the crowd, the environment, the atmosphere. And one more thing to put a bow on this, complimentary to the players for recognizing that and thanking the fans after the game and some of the post-game interviews that people like Trevor Etienne, Graham Mertz gave, very complimentary, very classy of the team to recognize the fan base for that. So let's continue to pay it forward and do what we can for this football team who's given so much for us already three games into the season. All right. So this is a big win. Florida's now in the top 25. How big of a win is this for Billy Napier? We said he needed that signature win. 
Neil, this feels like it's 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 definitely I, I don't think there's an argument this is the biggest win of his career yet. I mean, yes, the Utah win last year was huge, but that was like when it was really fresh. It was a fresh slate. We were one to know. It was almost like kind of a surprise that we got it when we did it. This one feels different. Waking up this morning, it felt like Billy Napier turned a corner a little bit and he got a great win up in, in you know texas a&m last year the, the the south carolina win was good the utah win last year was good this one just it feels different it's early in the season and i think i think it's for me because it just changes the trajectory the script for the season because had we lost this game we would have been one and two that you know best case two and two going into that kentucky game not ranked who knows what happens? But now the eyeballs are on Florida in the SEC East race. You win that first game against Tennessee, you're in the race for the SEC East. And moving forward through the next couple of games here, Florida very likely could be favored in every single one of them if they do their part. So what do you think? How big of a win is this for Napier? I mean, the the sentence, this is the biggest win of Napier's life, doesn't even come close to touching it. This is... I, honestly, I think that that this is going to go down as the biggest win in his Florida career at the end of this season, and possibly at the end of 2024. Like, like we could be going into 2025 saying to ourselves that Tennessee win in the swamp in 2023 remains the biggest win of his career. Obviously, if Florida goes and beats Georgia, if they beat a top five FSU team, yeah, of course, that could change that. FSU, by the way, does not look like a top five team, but that's a discussion for a different day. Anyway, this is a game that I think could remain, could hold that spot as the biggest win of Napier's career as time progresses, as more data becomes available to us, as more results roll themselves out. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I said before the game, Napier has to win this game because if he doesn't, trouble is brewing. And I, I don't mean in the sense that he's going to get fired. I don't mean in the sense that he's even going to be on the hot seat. I think all that kind of talk is premature. But again, look at the schedule that looms ahead. Not just this year, but next year. If Florida had lost this game, it would it was very possible, and, and it remains very possible, that Florida goes to Lexington and loses that game. That's not going to be easy for the Florida Gators. The Gators could go to South Carolina and lose that game too. That's not a sure thing for Florida. And then obviously the tougher part of the schedule on the back end after the bye. Georgia, I know LSU has a lot of issues, but that's not going to be easy going to Death Valley, winning that an FSU rivalry game. Anything can happen there. So you can see a lot of situations where losses start piling up like autumn leaves. And if you throw Tennessee in there as a loss too, you're looking at the end of the season. Well, what what the hell is this? We went six and six Napier's first year. Now we're six and six or seven and five, or God forbid, five and seven at the end of his second year. There's no progress. There's, if anything, stagnation or maybe even regression and you can't have that going into a third year where you're going to have either a true freshman in DJ Lagway or and we'll we will give Graham Mertz all the praise in the world coming up in a minute but there are limitations with him as quarterback he is not going to be a Joe Burrow he is never going to be a Hendon Hooker he is never going to be that Heisman type quarterback and that does put a cap on your offense so you have to look at things in the sense that if Florida had lost this game, is Billy Napier in a position where he's going to have to win more games than is realistic to expect him to win? And in that sense, yeah, he would have been in real trouble 
looking at that year three schedule, the the trip to Texas, who, by the way, looked like a national championship contender this year. The road trip to Tennessee is going to be up for that game. Revenge on their mind. Georgia at FSU. LSU, ridiculously talented as always. Texas A&M comes to the swamp. They have issues, of course, but there's still a lot of talent there. So you just factor all these things in to the equation and see where Billy Napier would be if Florida had lost his game and where he'd be looking ahead of Florida lost his game. He needed this win to avoid all that. That's all gone now, at least for the time being, until and unless a lot more losses pile up quickly. But that 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 sort of bleeding is stopped. And now we can look at things as in the, in the context of, Hey, look at the doors we've unlocked. We're looking ahead at games that we can win and should win and setting up a much brighter future where doors are open as opposed to trouble is brewing. Yeah. It's, it's a win that really, everything kind of came together in one night. You got the big signature win national TV. You got Chris Fowler, Holly road, Kirk Herbstreit calling the game. All the eyes of the nation are on this before the Colorado, Colorado state game came on at 10 o'clock. You've got all your best recruits that are committed to the program and guys you're still trying to get for this year and next year in the house. They get to see that incredible environment. They get to see you get that signature win. You beat a rival for the first time in your tenure at the university of Florida. You start the sec schedule off one and zero, which you didn't do last year. It's a huge win. I mean, it's a big win, and it sets us up well. Look, we got Charlotte at home this week. We should win that one, get us to three and one. Then you go on the road to Kentucky. That's another gonna be. It's gonna be another barometer game to see how far he's come as a coach, as well as how this team's come. But you know what? I don't see why Florida shouldn't be favored in that game if you're a ranked opponent. Kentucky's not ranked now. Going on the road, I mean, that's gonna be a tough one. But hey, the Florida probably be favored. Then you go home, revenge spot against Vanderbilt, and then you go on the road to Columbia, South Carolina, a team that. Put up a very good fight against Georgia this week. Let's give them their flowers on that one. But still a team that has a lot of issues at the offensive line, an area where Florida won last night was in the trenches. They're a worthy, more physical football team. And if they can do that, they can certainly beat a team like a South Carolina who has limitations along the offensive line. So it's not in it's. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's not inconceivable. Florida could go on a run here and be a contender in the SEC East when they go into the the showdown in Jacksonville at the end of October. But it all had to start with this win against Tennessee. And yes, you know, you look ahead to next year, the schedule's brutal. He's got to show progress this year to give hope that next year we can move forward. So it is a massive win for Napier. I think the fan base now finally has a reason to buy in a little bit more to what he is selling, the fan base and also the recruits. You know, this helps solidify recruits in the that we have 21 recruits right now committed. There's still a couple of guys we want to add to that list before this December signing day and guys making decisions. It, it's huge to see have those guys in attendance to be able to see that atmosphere to make the feel. And there were some guys that, that were tweeting out, hey, you know, I don't need to see any more. I don't need to see any more. This is where I want to be. In fact, Florida was able to get a, a, a commitment for the 2025 season uh, next year already. They got that started running back out of plan high school uh, in Tampa. So huge win, huge get for the Gators, huge night for Billy Napier and moving forward for this program. Well, let's let's move on to the next thing, though, and we'll, we'll talk about another coach who has been fantastic. I think he's probably the fan favorite now in Gainesville, if you ask anybody, and that's 31-year-old defensive coordinator Austin Armstrong. Taking this program by storm, leading a defense that is now top 
10 in the nation three weeks into the season. Neil, I don't think anybody had on their Gator bingo card top 10 defense this season. I think they were hopeful that Austin Armstrong would be that catalyst to get us back to moving toward a Gator defensive unit that we could be proud of. But top 10 brings back some nostalgic memories of where we were just a couple of years ago before Dan Mullen arrived and some of those defenses we had. It felt like it last night in the swamp. Like, I just remember when it was third and 20 last year, when it was third and 20, I was like, okay, who's going to have the busted coverage last night on third and 20. I was like, who's going to make the tackle to get this crowd riled up and they're off the field. Like there was a confidence, I think in the fan base again, that this defense is for real. So what are your thoughts thus far on Austin Armstrong and this defense and what it's done for us? Well, first of all, before I talk about Austin Armstrong, I do want to give some quick props to former defensive coordinator Patrick Tony. I do think that he has something to do with the defense being what it is now. Obviously, he's not the defensive coordinator this year. Austin Armstrong is, and Armstrong is going to get the majority of the props. But a lot of players, if you listen to their interviews last year, were talking about how they felt a lot more comfortable in Patrick Tony's scheme, how they felt a lot more confident in, in themselves, how they felt that Tony was a great teacher. Um, I think now former, unfortunately, now former defensive back Darius Perkins said, this man is a wizard. This man is a wizard as a teacher. And we love him and we're very grateful to have him. So when Patrick Tony left, part of the reason why we got Austin Armstrong to replace him is because of the similarities in the scheme between Tony and Armstrong. So there's a there's some subtle differences. Yeah, the, the stunts are a little different. Um, you know, maybe maybe some corner blitzes look a little different here and there, but overall, it's it's a fairly similar scheme. So Tony, uh, I think, took a beating from the fan base for something that wasn't really his fault. He was trying to transition them away from the mess that Todd Grantham left them. But anyway, wanted to start with that. Now, as for Armstrong, yeah, I mean, he's a hero. He he is the hero um, right now among a lot of Gator fans. He has the defense playing confident. He has the defense playing fundamentally sound. Yes, there are some small issues here and there. I didn't love seeing Jason Marshall get beaten on the touchdown pass uh, in, in the corner there. But, I mean, this defense is playing fast, physical, and aggressive, and you just have to love it. Well, that moment right there, too, is one of the moments that I loved. And, and for this morning, I don't know if you saw it, Neil, but Jordan Castell picked his, head up, his helmet up after that play and got beat. Freshman corner, it's going to happen. We've talked about this ad nauseum, like, Freshman players are going to get beat in the, uh, on defense. Like it, it's kind of a rite of passage in the SEC. But in that moment when he had his head down, brought it up, that's a leader. And the fact that that kid's a true freshman out there, Jordan Castell played lights out. I mean, I, I can't imagine what his PFF grade, but I just wanted to say, like, point that out that that was just an incredible moment just from leadership. And Jordan Castell did miss a tackle earlier in the game. And what does he do? He gets back up gets back on the field, and he plays lights-out football the rest of the way. I mean, how many pass weird... breakups did he have in this game? I mean, I think Oh, he saved three. the touchdown. He yeah. saved the touchdown. And, yes, and and I think like turnovers, it's worth pointing out that not all pass breakups are created equal. You could have two guys in double coverage on a, on a frankly, a stupidly thrown ball. That's a bad decision versus maybe the guy has you beat by a step or two, and this ball is sailing 60 yards through the air. And it's a touchdown if you don't do something, anything to just save it. And he did. He knocked that ball away with, I think, 6.58 to go in the in the quarter. So Jordan Castell bounces back from an early tackle. I'm, I am, I'm always a huge fan of players who maybe 
you know, don't do something great. They make a mistake that, that hurts the team. And then they bounce back to save the game. And I think that that pass breakup by Castell helped save the football game for the Florida Gators. And for a true freshman to do that, I mean, Chris, we, we heard about Castell in spring ball. I, I wrote about him um, in, in some of the some of the summer practice notes that I was getting from people close to the program. But it's one thing to hear about that in practice and have everyone like you as a true freshman. It's quite another with the ball hurtling through the air in the swamp at night, crowd rocking. There, there are real stakes attached here to be able to go out and make that play. Yeah, I mean, that was I, – I know what moment you're talking about. It was thrown toward my end of the field where I was sitting, and my heart stopped when that ball's in the air because I'm, I'm if they get this, that could turn the momentum of the game. And, and he just played it beautifully. Didn't interfere with the receiver, didn't commit a DPI, waited for the ball, and then picked at the right moment to knock it away. This defense just – they're very disciplined both in the way they play, the way they get set up, aligned assignment football it is being drilled in their heads you've seen the videos that have come out over the last couple of at least the last week with the, the social media department for the football team has put out how how Austin Armstrong coaches these guys up in the locker room they're doing it the right way and I have the utmost confidence that we haven't even seen the best of what this defense can be yet I think it can continue to get better as the season goes on as they change the schemes there, there are multiple. There are multiple defense. They play multiple on the front and the back end, which is a great luxury to have because you can, you know, sub in and out your personnel. I thought during the game they subbed the personnel very, very well. If you noticed on the fourth down where we stuffed them on fourth and one, I think it was in the middle of the third quarter at a halftime. There was that moment, or after they kicked, they had already kicked the field goal. They were going down again. There was that moment where they made us. Uh, the referees had to restart the play clock, and then immediately. They knew to sub, so they were able to sub in some fresh bodies on the defensive line, and then that actually allowed to get the push so Scooby Williams could get through the line and make the tackle for the loss in the backfield. Critical moment, but that was just a little small detail that we were able to, you know, quickly the coaching staff recognized the situation and then made the adjustment in real time. I thought was pretty was 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 really fantastic. But this defense has got me excited moving forward for for what's to come because we're going to need more of these performances because I do think there are some limitations on what this offense can do. I don't. I think it can get better, but unfortunately, it's probably not where we're going to want it to be. By the end of the season, just based on personnel, who we have right now. So the defense is going to have to carry this team. Yeah, defense is going to have to carry this team, and they've done it so far. I will say the offense can can pull its weight by being efficient, as Graham Mertz was in the first half. We'll talk about that in a second. But another micro detail I noticed is that this defense looks fundamentally sound. You don't see guys crashing into each other. I mean, there, there never really was the the blocking themselves moment like we had with the offense in 2013 with uh with, with Tony in his first year but there there was a lot of discombobulation with with Todd Grantham's defense there's a lot of pointing a lot of angry yelling there's a lot of you know gesticulating like hey no you had him you had him as the ball was being snapped as receivers were running their routes you don't see that now Guys know what they're doing and yeah they're going to miss tackles there are going to be some busted coverages here or there Every defense is going to have that happen, but you see it happening less. That's that's important thing, number one. And two, you don't see it happening with the same player multiple times. No one's perfect. Guys are going to make mistakes, but you don't see a particularly weak link 
with that happening again and again and again. That's the thing that I point at that I look at and go, yeah, that's that's improvement. That's something I can ha- that we can hang our hat on as Gator defense. Yeah, no, I agree. And the thing is, when you get the amount of three and outs and you get the defense off the field like we are, I know Florida hasn't had the turnovers that they probably would have liked. They don't even really have the sack numbers. I think you have to reflect how good the pass rush and the defensive line has been. That, to me, will come with time as we play teams that maybe not have a running quarterback like a Jill Milton. But as if you're getting off the field and you're giving the ball back to your offense – it's just as effective as a turnover. Like that that turnover in the game was the perfect time for it to happen because the momentum was already on Florida's side and then it just kept building from there. And from that, Florida struck and took advantage of it. But if you're getting off the field the way we are, you don't necessarily need to hit the home run defensive play every time. You just need to give your you need to put your offense in a position where they can go win the game, which is what they did last night. Very complimentary football, offense and defense to everybody, as Billy Napier likes to always point out, complimentary football. But defense that it's it, look, I mean, I well, I think when we get to our grades, we're gonna grade them very high, maybe the highest grade of the night. But I'm excited moving forward what this team could do. And I think they could definitely make some noise in the SEC this year because of it. All right. So this was kind of a game of a tale of two halves. First half versus second half. First half, Neil, we talked about it. Florida got out and and they really they did they started quick. I mean, they didn't score on that first drive, but they were able to drive down the field and having a, a, a chance to get some points. They didn't, but they got right back down. They they hit the home run ball with the 62-year run from ETN. They were able to move the change in this game. There were some third and long situations, which the first two games, Florida struggled on third and long, especially against Utah. And when we were in those situations in this game, it felt like it was going to be deja vu all over again, but it wasn't. Graham Mertz, very impressed with the way he was able to move the pocket. And, you know, I think the uh, the image of him pump faking the defender and then making the man miss for the first down is, is a good jump man ad if anybody hasn't seen it yet. It's out there on making the rounds on social media, but Florida was able to play a very good first half, very efficient. That's the word you use, Neil, to get almost 300 yards of total offense, 26 points, built a 19 point halftime lead. Exactly what you want. Juxtapose though, the second half, Florida kind of sat on the ball a little bit in the second half. They, they clearly were trying to bleed cock. They were relying on, I, I think the way I look at it is, they were relying on the fact that their defense had was going to win them this game. They didn't want to do anything to lose the game by turning the ball over, sporting Tennessee a spotting Tennessee a short field and scoring. Because as we saw, Tennessee could move the ball fast at moments in the game. But what were your thoughts on the first half versus the second half game plan? And is it a concern moving forward with the play they, the way they played the second half? Yeah, I mean, obviously not a fan of curling up in the into a ball and going conservative in the second half. But here's where I'm willing to have patience with Billy Napier because I said all offseason long, I'm not asking for a natty. I'm not asking for a New Year's Six. I'm not asking to go to Atlanta. I need to see progress. I need to see learning. I need to see growing. I need to see development. I need to see signs that things are going in the right direction. And I got one in that first half. Fans kept expressing frustration with not getting Trey Wilson the ball more. Well, first drive, we did nothing but get him the football. I think he had almost 40 yards of total offense on that first drive. And then, of course, you know, he he gets injured, so it's a little more difficult to do it, obviously, after that. But 
Second quarter, we do little else other than feed the ball to Trevor Etienne. Obviously, Trevor Etienne is an explosive playmaker, so we get him the football time and again, and big things happen. Now, I will point out that number five on Tennessee, Kamal Haddon, uh, kind of embarrassed himself with his quote-unquote effort to tackle him on that touchdown run. But nonetheless, even if, if Haddon shows some good fundamentals, he goes with his arms and attempts to actually make the tackle and not just shoulder him to the ground, that's still a 10-15 yard run. That's a good play call. First drive of the game, even the the, the counter to, to Trevor Etienne that gets them another 10 yards or so. That's a good play call. And then when, when we're not feeding ETN the ball for a change of pace, we have Graham Mertz doing the things that we envisioned him doing when we went and got him. We didn't ever see him being a Heisman candidate. We saw him as a game manager who could make a couple big throws here or there when he had to, but then let his playmakers do the rest. And we saw them do exactly that. Ricky Pearsall made an impact. Uh, Obviously, Trey Wilson made an impact. Khalil Jackson made an impact. Caleb Douglas with another one of those aggressive catches. Like you see on Madden, there's a button you hit in the game of Madden or NCAA football to like angry catch, to go out with two hands and not just catch the ball, but snatch it out of the air. Caleb Douglas does that again, letting guys who have skills use those skills to benefit the Florida Gators and help move the ball down the field. We saw that in the first half. So because of that, I'm willing to part in the second half as, look, Napier doesn't know what he's doing. He is a young coach. He's learning on the job. Wilson was injured. That was his ace in the hole. So, you know, I, I get that. <clears throat> Do wish maybe we'd utilize more Ricky Pearsall and Khalil Jackson and Caleb Douglas in the passing game a little more in the second half. But Merch in the first half, 17 for 20. And two of those incompletions were intelligent throwaways. So that shows me that there is a real capability for this offense to not only be efficient, Chris, but to be a component of the Gators that can win games because efficiency can kill. If you, if you just hold on to the ball and move it down the field and convert those drives into points, that can be fatal for opponents. So I love what I saw in that first half, and it does give me confidence in Billy Napier going forward as a play caller. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes, too, we don't give enough credit to the opposing team for making adjustments. We love to praise our team when we are successful in doing it. But sometimes the other team is successful, too. And Tennessee was successful in the second half, shutting the run game down. They started loading the box a little bit more. They were able to swarm to the ball. Now, maybe Florida should have adjusted and said, "Okay, we're going to throw it over the top. They didn't. They didn't want to risk the turnover. That's what I believe. But like you said, they were very efficient in this game. Graham Mertz, 19 to 24. 166 yards, and I'm going to call out the fact I said he Graham Mertz was going to throw a buck 68 in this game, and you go back and listen to it, right on the money, buck 66, we'll take it. That's efficiency, though. He didn't turn the ball over. He had a touchdown throwing. He had one rushing, and he made some plays when he needed to, to move the chains, and that's all we really need from Graham Mertz this season. If the defense is going to continue to play at the top 10 level that they are, Florida, in my mind, should have had well over 400 yards, almost 500 yards of total offense in this game. If they had pressed a little bit harder, I think they could have had it. But they had a they had a big lead, and they did what they had to do to get the win. And right now, at this stage in the program, we need to celebrate wins when they come. I love the young receivers in this in this passing game. Like you mentioned, Caleb Douglas, obviously Ricky Pearsall, 
Eugene Wilson, before he got hurt, was actually left, still left the game as the leading receiver, six catches for 44 yards. And I think, and thank goodness, the injury uh, was was a bruise, not a, a broken collarbone. So that is fantastic news because that would have been a very fatal loss for the Gators this season had we lost our freshman playmaker. So, you know, conceivably he'll be back, hopefully at least by Kentucky. Uh, maybe he'll sit next week. I don't know. We'll have to hear what Billy Napier says this week in this press conference. But the offense is able to move the ball. They, they, they can show that there is a way to do it in an efficient manner. And as long as the defense is able to complement with stout defense getting stops and getting off the field, there's not much more you can really ask for from this team. And as time goes on and we are able to get personnel that reflects what Billy Napier is looking for to run, then I think that's when we're going to start seeing a change. And we're going to start to see it become more of an elite-level offense where it is putting up big-time yardage, where it is scoring at will. And then you start seeing those big time blowouts, but I, it's a data point. It's something to track something to see in future games. We're in a similar situation. How does Billy Napier react in that situation, but remains to be seen moving forward. So uh, we'll take the win though, because it's a big win. It sure was a big win, Chris. And a big win is going to call for some special new merch. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And speaking more generally, this is the perfect place for us to shout out our new merch store. We've got new merch that is comfortable, lightweight for those hot summer days. Makes it clear to everyone you come across which team you pull for. From 100% polyester workout tees to soft style cotton tees, sport tech polos, quarter zips, hoodies, beanies, baseball caps, trucker hats, koozies, tumblers, and more in all kinds of weather has just the gear you're looking for this football season. Our in all kinds of weather gear is sold in four colors, orange, blue, black, and white, and it all features that sleek new alligator logo that pays homage to all your favorite moments in gator history. So don't wait. Get yours today. Go to inallkindsofweather.com slash merch to get yours now. That's inallkindsofweather.com slash merch. Yeah, definitely, Neil. We look forward to seeing that amazing Tennessee merch coming out there to celebrate the big, big victory in the Swamp. So can't wait to see that. All right, so we've talked about the 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 game. We've talked about the atmosphere, the first and the second half. Coach Armstrong, Billy Napier. But let's talk about where this team can go. What do we think the ceiling is? And we'll have Dustin on later this week to talk about how the model has changed after this. Florida now is a top 25 team. I suspect they're going to be rising in many power rankings throughout the country. What is the ceiling now for this Gator team, in your opinion, Neil? Well, I, I don't think this team is beating Georgia. I think that Georgia is going to learn from their subpar performance against South Carolina. And I still think that that road game at LSU is just, it's, it's just asking for too much. I think every other game on the schedule is winnable. I, I think FSU looked very, very vulnerable against a bad Boston College team. Granted, probably looking ahead a little bit to Clemson. That is a rivalry game for them. It was a, a windy day in Boston and all that stuff you can maybe say. But FSU looked very vulnerable. So I think 9-3 and three is very much on the table for this Florida Gator team. And then you throw in a bowl game, which are always just – coin flip propositions now with all the opt-outs that are just going to happen for both sides. It's very possible that Florida does 
get double digit wins. And who knows if they look impressive enough and they keep rising in the rankings and, and those two losses I have earmarked to Georgia and LSU are, are competitive. They might just sneak into a new Year's six bowl. So again, it's theoretically possible that they can still compete for the natty. I think that that's just not that that's asking for too much. I think that's a bit unrealistic, but if Florida continues to play this way on defense, if Florida, allows for playmakers on offense to keep doing what they do well. That's you know, that's Trevor Etienne. That's Montreal Johnson. He didn't have a huge game this time, but we all know what he's capable of doing. Um, we let those guys do what they can do on the ground. The offensive line, by the way, with Kingsley, shout them out. They look great yep. for most of the game. I think there were I, – I watched an abbreviated version of the highlights. I think I saw maybe two missed blocks the entire game by the entire offensive line. So, Neil – yeah, let's not discount that. The The return of Kingsley, we'll get back to what we're talking about, but the return of Kingsley Agukon was huge. It was noticeable. Like They played lights out, and Tennessee's defensive line is nothing to be trifled with. They are a good unit. That was probably the strongest unit they had on defense, and that was a matchup we talked about going into this game that the Florida offensive line had to rise to the occasion. They certainly did in this game, and it was a big part because Kingsley was back in there. And you know, you saw guys like Richie Lennard getting pancake blocks on the near the goal line. Mascua, you know, when he wasn't squaring up for a fist fight, was was blocking guys too. I, I think there are still some limitations on the edge with George, especially in pass blocking. But overall, I feel pretty confident about the unit that we have going out there, and that they're going to be able to continue to protect Murs and get the run game going. Agreed. And honestly, I think Jake Slaughter could be a complimentary piece here and there on the interior of the offensive line. Damian George might be the weak link of the line, but he didn't do that badly. He didn't no. do great. But I mean, you know, he, there, there were a couple of plays where he did look a little flat footed. Maybe some guys got a little bit more leverage than you would have liked, but he he wasn't a liability in this game the way he was against Utah. And obviously Kingsley anchoring the line does have something to do with that. There is certainly some cause and effect relationship there between the center and the tackle and how they do. But nonetheless, this offensive line looks like it can be a unit that is a strength again, which we were hoping it would be this off season when we went and we got Damian George, we went and got Keontae Goodwin. Obviously he's no longer with the program, but even after some things started happening, even after the line started coming apart, like with Cam Waits tearing his Achilles, Keontae Goodwin transferring to be closer to his family. Even after all that happened, we still said, look, we got bigger. We got more muscle on the offensive line. We'd like to think we can be a good offensive line this year. And we have been. So the point is, if we continue to take those strides, if we continue to get the ball to Trey Wilson in space, if we continue to feed Trevor Etienne or, hey, he'll he'll have bad days. On those days, it'll be Montreal Johnson. Maybe it's going to be neither of them. Maybe it's going to be Trayon Webb who steps up and does the bulk of the of the work on the on the ground and maybe it's Ricky Pearsall who's just having a day with whatever kind of coverage scheme the opponent is trying to stop him with and failing to do so whatever is working feeding that component of the offense doing what they're supposed to do and then the defense that we see so far this year we continue to do all that nine and three is very much on the table it's not going to be easy I, I'm not even going to say I, I would predict that but it's realistic yeah, no, I, I agree. And look, Georgia doesn't look strong right now, and neither does Alabama for that matter. And um, I point those two teams out because quarterback play is everything. How many – I'm going to say it. 
I think Bama fans would date Graham Ertz right now as their starting quarterback based on what they have. I mean, they're struggling. They were in a slugfest with USF yesterday for almost the entire game. That game was potentially in jeopardy. It was a one-score game until the very end of the fourth quarter when they punched it in to make it 17-3. Georgia was in a dogfight against South Carolina. They played lights out on defense in the second half. Clearly, once again, their strength and Kirby Smart teams, that's their identity, is they're very strong defensive teams. But Carson Beck is struggling right now. That team relies mostly on the run game, some efficiency there with their offensive line, but they're not firing on all cylinders yet. And who knows what they'll do there. I I think Georgia on a neutral site, crazier things have happened. I'm not saying Florida, I'm not projecting Florida to win that game, but I do think if things, if let's say Florida goes into that game six and one, coming off a bye week, there's going to be momentum for the Gators going into that game. So we'll have to see. College football is a crazy sport. It's a week to week sport. It's a one game at a time sport. Florida has to take the next four game, four games, one game at a time. You know, we got to worry about Charlotte this week. We can't look ahead to Kentucky. I think that was in big part of what happened to Florida State up at Boston this past weekend was they're looking ahead to their showdown with Clemson on the road next weekend. But, you know, I think that if Florida just focuses one game at a time, the coaching staff keeps them focused, they do their end of the bargain by having a great game plan set up. There's no reason why they can't win the next four games. There's no reason why they can't give Georgia a scare in Jacksonville. There's no reason why they shouldn't beat Arkansas. There's no reason why they shouldn't have a great game at home against Florida State. The schedule is doable moving forward. I think Florida realistically is favored in all of them but three. I mean, honestly, if you really look at it, they're favored and all. And that's where I think Neil comes up kind of with that nine and three number. But if Florida's able to pick a game off, they're not expected to win moving forward. I mean, I think there there were some people out there saying Florida could win this game. I think it was a it, Florida Tennessee game was more 50 50 than maybe far out onlookers saw uh, there. This game was was back and forth. You saw people like look at our podcast. Dustin and I predicted Florida to win, but, you know, win close. Neil predicted Tennessee to win, but close. Like people thought this was going to be a close game and it could go either way. You know, looking down the line, if there's a game out there that Florida gets that nobody sees coming, then all bets are off. But I, I agree. I think nine wins is probably a reasonable ceiling. And look, if you finish a season nine and three and then get a bowl win, huge momentum going into next year. Huge, huge. So, like we said, this is a huge game changer for the program to get this win. I do think this team has the ability to win nine games to hit that higher end of the ceiling, but we'll have to see. It starts with Charlotte, and then you get that win. I think, Neil, if Florida gets the win at Kentucky in two weeks, we'll come back here and talk about then how realistic things are moving forward because at that point, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Florida should beat Vanderbilt. That's got to be the standard. we got to beat Vanderbilt at home, get that revenge game at homecoming. It, things things really do set up well for the team if they're able to get that game in two weeks in Lexington, for sure. And that's like that's kind of what I'm pointing at. That every game on the schedule ranges from Florida should win to win a bowl, with the exception of Georgia and Jacksonville. And well, LSU has been Casey ruled. Uh, for those who maybe newer <laughs> listeners, uh, the the Casey rule is when you're favored to beat a team three years in a row by more than a touchdown and you lose all three, you don't predict Florida to win that game until they actually do it. So that's, that's like a special thing, but forget that 
Every other game on the schedule ranges from the Gators should win this game to the Gators can reasonably win this game. And you're giving them margin for error to lose one of them, right? I mean, whether or not it's it's LSU, whether you want to say it's FSU, uh, maybe they'll have a just a terrible game against Arkansas at home. They shouldn't lose that game, but okay, there's room for one screw up in there against a non-Georgia team, and you've got nine and three. So we talk about realistic ceilings versus maybe pie in the sky. No, that is realistic. It, it can very, very, very much happen. Now, Florida will have to keep doing the right things fundamentally. That Napier will have to continue to improve as a play caller. He will have to continue to shelve the, the, the stupidity, for lack of a better word, from Utah, where he's calling screen passes to Caleb Douglas on fourth and 15 and shovel passes to Dante Sanders on fourth and four. But assuming we keep seeing that growth, yeah, it's very, very, very realistic, which is not something a lot of fans would have thought after watching that Utah game. So again, that goes to the point of we're seeing growth. We're seeing development. We're seeing progress. That was all I asked for in year two of Billy Napier. I did not ask for a natty. I did not ask for Atlanta. I did not ask for a New Year's Six Bowl. I asked for progress. And Chris, we're seeing it. Yep. No, we're seeing it. And we'll have to see. I think I think the game in two weeks is a big is a big opportunity to get closer to that nine. The chances of us going nine and three exponentially go up if we beat Kentucky. So we'll just have to see. Obviously, we've got to take business, take care of business this Saturday in the swamp, seven o'clock uh, against Charlotte as Florida will be celebrating Tom Petty in that game. And come on, that Tom Petty tribute last night, once again, ugh. That I don't, I, 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 we obviously were at the game and we took videos of it and we're living in the moment, but you saw the broadcast of how they came back going into the third, into the fourth quarter. I mean, goosebumps, like goosebumps seeing this. Like, who would not want to come to University of Florida and play in front of that? I mean, it's just it's a special place. Swamp is a special place. University of Florida's got some awesome traditions and, it's cool to be a part of that. If you haven't seen it yet, we we can't show them on YouTube because, I mean, with all the bureaucracy behind the scenes at YouTube, we don't want to get slapped with more copyright hits. But go go to our Twitter. Go to All Kinds Weather on Twitter and just scroll through our tweets. Scroll through our, our media, our, our videos and photos. Just look at it. Just take a look. If you don't know what we're talking about, just look and see for yourself because you can't you can't do it justice by by pure English. Chris, you can't use words to describe it. You just have to watch it and soak that moment in. Here, here's how crazy it was. People in the press box had the lights on their phones on. Yeah. And were waving them back and forth. The people in the press box are not supposed to be fans. They're not there to soak in the atmosphere and, and change the game. And even they couldn't help it. They had to just partake in this new awesome tradition that the Florida Gators have. It it is so much more powerful because the lights can turn off now though for that the, yes. the, just seeing the phones like it, it it feels like you're at a concert when you when when like the main act is on and everybody's jamming out like, it, it really does feel like that because the lights are able to turn off and now they're able to do the orange and blue led light show whenever the scores happen it it is that extra level of detail that is starting to modernize the swamp in a good way this was a it was, i think overall has become a positive change for the program so just had to highlight that, and, and uh, it makes you look forward to the next night game, which we don't have to wait too long, only in six more days. 
All right. So we are now at the end of our show where we're going to let's actually sorry about that. Let's let's talk about standouts really quick, too. Uh, we're, we're a quarter of the way through the season and then we'll get to our grades. I almost forgot that. I wanted to just quickly discuss who we thought our offensive and defensive standouts are really quick. I, I'll go first and just name mine and then Neil, I'll let you go with yours. I want to I want to just shout out Graham Ertz. This is a guy who was much maligned going into the offseason. I think a lot of people kind of lied about this kid because he was put in a very difficult situation at Wisconsin in an offense that didn't really suit his abilities. And, you know, he got he got labeled. He got labeled as a guy that just threw almost as many interceptions as touchdowns. And he couldn't come in and lead a big program. And he has proven completely otherwise being here at Florida. And I just, I love how he just, he really enjoys being a Gator. It's so obvious when you watch him in press conferences on the sideline, he, and there was that moment in the game where he got his finger cut and he played right through it. I mean, the poise that he showed last night against a top 11 team was something to be remembered. It wasn't like he lit up the stat line like crazy, but it was really something to be, to be reckoned with. And, the other thing I'll, I'll talk about too, seeing out on the offensive side, is uh, well, oh yeah, of course, yeah. The the uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, the uh, the band baton everybody gets after the guy scores a touchdown, Graham Mertz, you know, hitting the home run with that. I mean, that that's some swag. They're just just straight swag. I mean, I, I love it. But the other thing too is you know our running backs, and I know you'll probably I'll let you you know you can talk about ETN, but Johnson played good too last night. He had a touchdown run, and he had one through the, the that screen pass where he was able to make a defender miss an open field and then run it twenty yards to the end zone. Big moment in that game. If you don't get that, then you're setting up a third and long. So he made a big point, big play in that, and and, and Montreal had had a good uh, game against McNeese as well. So this this running back duo obviously is great defensively. Scooby Williams. I mean, Scooby Williams. Shamar James has played fantastic too, but Scooby Williams the last two games has been a standout. He is getting to the ball, swarming. It's something to be to be excited about. Only a sophomore. And then freshman Jordan Castell is a safety. I, I don't think I've ever seen a freshman play safety better than him at the University of Florida. I mean, maybe I'm too young to remember some guys. Kyle Jackson. <laughs> Yeah, I guess uh, that it, it's been a while since. Yeah, Kyle Jackson was pretty good, but God, I tell you though, it's been a long time since we had a freshman come in here and and do what he what 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 he's done. It, it's uh, he to me. I think he's on the road to being. I don't even. I mean, he's at least a, a all conference freshman, all conference guy I, I, in my mind. So. It's exciting stuff. We got some. We got a lot of rookies, as Billy Napier likes to call them. I like how he calls them rookies. They're not freshmen. They're rookies. You know what I'm implying? They're, you know, just I think it's kind of a cool little label he likes to put on them. You know, kind of treats them like professionals. But a lot of rookies out there flying to the ball and making plays, both on the offensive and defensive side. So it's exciting. What about you, Neil? What are your standouts? I mean, offense. I have to talk about Graham Mertz, but you kind of did. Um, the efficiency. The first half, the 17 for 20 in the first half is something I'm going to go back to again and again and again, the rest of the season. And even this off season, if he comes back for next year, I'm going to point to that stat over and over again. The 17 for 20 is ridiculously efficient on its own. That's 85%. It's more impressive when you realize, again, two of those three incompletions were intelligent throwaways. Those were good plays that are not 
I mean, they don't look good in the stat because they look like incompletions. So you think, well, they're incompletion. So they hurt his efficiency. So they must not have been good. No, those were good plays by Graham Mertz to keep Florida from potentially disastrous situations. So that's what I wanted to point out with him. Um, and then, you know, him just taking the scepter and I call it a scepter, not a baton, because it's a sign of royalty to me when you just, you know, you hoist that thing up and you go for the home run ball and you swing. I mean, that that's just swag. Chris, I mean, that, that, was, the, that was the description. Swag. He's swagged out. Love it. ETN. Um, yeah, you got to kind of point to Kamal Haddon just getting lazy. The defensive back for Tennessee just getting outright lazy and just not even attempting to really tackle him or, or bring arms. But that was still a nice game. That was still a very nice game by Trevor Etienne, and it highlighted an ability of his to see the hole and cut quickly. He doesn't screw around in the backfield, dancing around, looking for the perfect hole. No, he's one cut and go, maybe two cuts occasionally. If he sees the f- that the first hole he was going towards is kind of closing quickly, he can make a second cut. But he's get the ball identify where he's going to go and go quick. And that's it. And he's gone and he's through the hole and it yielded results last night. He had almost 200 yards on the ground. That's incredible. Obviously the offensive line has to get some props for that. Kingsley. I mean, we're talking about a quarter of the way into the year. Kingsley didn't play the first two games, but we saw the impact he had immediately when he steps onto the field for the Florida Gators. So he has to get a shout out there. Um, Caleb Douglas, I mean, there's only so many I can probably give for time reasons, but Caleb Douglas, again, showing that that aggressive catch is something he can still do. We saw it against AM last year. We saw it against Utah the first game of the year. We saw it again against Tennessee. An aggressive catch, Khalil Jackson getting the two feet down on that, that, that third and long reception. That's an NFL catch that he made. So a lot of praise to give out there on the offense. Defense, Cam Jackson. It's got to be shouted out. He has made an instant impact on that defensive line. Shamar James has been nothing short of spectacular for the Florida Gators. He looks like, and I don't want to, I really don't like comparing him to former players, so I won't. But I will say he could be the next in a long line of standout linebackers for the Florida Gators. Jordan Castell, we shouted him out earlier. You just shouted him out a second ago. I second all of that. He's a stud for the Florida Gators, I would be stunned if he is not a freshman All-American the way he is playing. Um, and and I'll and I'll give one more, a bonus one, special teams. Trace Mack, how about that? Coming into the game, making an immediate impact for the Florida Gators as the Florida Gators kicker, which, Chris, I think is a nice segue into our final segment. Is it not? <laughs> I think it's time for grades. It's time to grade these guys and – uh, you know, I think overall it's going to be pretty solid. Uh, so let's get into it. Get Neil, give me your offense, defense, special teams, and coaching grades. Hard to evaluate the offense because I don't really know what the what the plan was the second half. Obviously, the the tale of two halves as you mentioned earlier. The offense looked a lot better the first half, the second half, but. I'll go ahead and give it a B plus because it was very efficient. It did what it had to do. And Trevor Etienne is just an absolute monster on the ground. Uh, Kingsley leading the way in the offensive line was a huge help with the Gators. Graham Mertz, we talked about that, very efficient. The receiver stepped up and helped him out. 
Um, I would have loved to have seen Trey Wilson for an entire game. Would have loved to have seen how we called plays with him healthy for a full 60 minutes. But, I mean, the receivers stepped up, did their part. The offensive line did their part. Graham Merch did his part. So it was just a well-oiled machine. Oh, and Montreal Johnson on that screen pass for a touchdown did his part, even though his, his stats as a runner didn't look so great. So full, you know, full participation for them. Just get dinged a little bit for that second half. So B-plus for them. Defense is going to get an A-minus. I would have liked to have not seen a couple of of busted coverages. I don't know, maybe not even busted coverages, but just guys getting beat deep. Uh, Jason Marshall, the the junior, the money years we called it for him. You'd like to maybe not see that happen for him. It it did give us a cool moment with the true freshman Castell lifting his helmet up, but maybe not what you want to see there. But. So, yeah, A-minus, holding them to 16 points. The third fewest points, by the way, in the tenure of Josh Heupel at Tennessee, now 2.25 years into it. And, oh, yeah, what was number two on that list? That would be two years ago. Don't give Grantham his praise, though. He doesn't deserve it. (laughs) True, he does not. But worth pointing out that that's just a hilarious footnote that Todd Grantham, for all his bumbling incompetence, is responsible for that cool fact. Um. All right, Georgia is the Georgia is the top one, correct? Last year, Georgia is the top one with 13 points allowed. They got 14 in the swamp two years ago, and they got 16 in the swamp here. Special teams. I mean, we did make the switch. We did make the switch. The the coaching is going to get credit for that. Special teams, Chris, they get an F because you can't. You can't. It's it's not going to be that F. It's not going to be that that two or that four out of a hundred. Um, but another, I just, I'm beginning to think you just like picking on them. Well, no, because there was another shanked punt. There were two more catastrophes on special teams. There was a, a badly mishit field goal by Mahalik. There was a blocked extra point. There was no big play in the special teams game. There was no big return. We didn't block a punt. There was no booming 65-yard punt to really flip the field. There was no you know 60-yard field goal. There was no real impact special teams play. There were only plays that hurt us in the special teams. Jeremy Crawshaw is starting to worry me a little bit. He He's done phenomenal things for the Gators in the past. He has been a great punter for the Gators, but he's not off to a great start this year. Hit another bad one that could have hurt. As that game got a little closer than I think a lot of us would have liked it to have gotten late in that fourth quarter, and he didn't help matters. He shanked one. So again, it, it's going to be like a, I don't know, like a fifty or a fifty-five out of a hundred, where it's not you know completely. It's not like a Chernobyl grade. It, you 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 can in theory bounce back from it, but it it's bad, Chris. It's bad. Special teams is supposed to be the one that changes the game for us, and it's changing it in a negative way again. So, yeah, they're going to get an F. Coaching is going to get – and I hate I hate dinging Napier for, for one thing, but the second half offensive play calling is going to hurt him. So I'm going to say B. It was a humongous win for Billy Napier and the Florida Gators. The coaching staff needed this to feel good, and they got it. And they did do a lot of great things on offense, but I, I wasn't a fan of curling up into a ball and going super conservative mode the second half. Frankly, I thought that we should have made the switch a kicker a lot earlier than we did. Um, I mean, I've, we should have made it at the beginning of the season. We should have. We should have. And and it took more than one mistake by Mahalik. The, the second kick that was blocked came out low. That's on Mahalik. Um, and and I'll and I'll keep it respectful, but keep it real. I'm gonna always point this out because we do accumulate new viewers who maybe or listeners who don't maybe you know know our history of this. So for those of you who may maybe not be familiar with us. 
um, beyond just a couple episodes ago. Our motto is keep it respectful, but keep it real. We never, we never make things personal on this podcast with the exception of Grantham, who, you know, everyone knows I don't like for personal reasons because of James Houston. But anyway, there's nothing personal about this. Mihalik just wasn't doing his job. I met him. I met his family a couple weeks ago um, after McNeese. They're great people. They're nice. They're friendly. And I believe he was trying his best, but he, he just didn't get the job done. And it was a business decision to make that move. So I wish him the best. And and there was, by the way, I will show this too. There was a shot of him that I took late in the game where he had had his job taken over by Trey Smack. And I'll show everyone here. These two were talking. They were communicating. They they had their arms over each other's shoulders at points during the game. Um, Trey Smack was consoling Adam Mahalik. Mahalik did give him a pat on the helmet at a different point in the game. Like, hey, come on, we need you. There's there's great teamwork there, and you love to see that. That's part of the culture that Billy Napier is building. But special teams um, and and coaching grades do have to get get dinged for that. But overall, it's it's a big win over a rival. So I'm going to say that this was a an overall B plus grade because you know B plus good was not great. There were definitely areas of improvement that we could use, but Chris, I, I think I think a B plus grade is is going to be something that we're quite happy about after seeing the utter calamity against Utah the first week of the season. Yeah, I mean, who could have predicted that? I mean, it, it was it, it's a huge turnaround in two weeks, which is which is fantastic to see. I'll start with the offense. Other offense, I agree, B plus for the offense. I would have liked to have seen them put a couple more points up on the board, maybe you know, sport a. A 40-burger, 450-plus yards uh, would have been nice. But nonetheless, you got the win. You got the win, and it was a big part because of the great efficiency we had in the first half by by getting 26 points by halftime and controlling the clock for the majority of the game and winning the time possession, and that's why we ultimately were able to hang on. So the offense gets a B-plus there. Defense, um, I'm going to go A, solid A. They, they played fantastic, and I know they gave up some big plays in this game that – I think that's going to be kind of a staple of an Austin Armstrong defense. They are going to give up the long ball from time to time, but the majority of the time they're going to make you go earn it. And I think the majority of the time too, they're going to get three and outs on defense a lot more than we've had before. So I can live with an occasional busted play or a deep ball as long as we're getting the stops like we are. And they did in this game and they're just playing incredibly sound football on the defensive side right now. As we've talked about, all podcast with Austin Armstrong. So the star of the team, the star of the show right now is the defense. They get an A special teams. I'm going to go C minus. I think that they deserve credit for making corrections, especially in the field goal kicking game. Obviously Trey smack. He, he looks like the better kicker. I, and I've always questioned no disrespect to Adam Mahalik, like you said, but I've always questioned the decision to start him over your scholarship kicker, who was ranked as one of the nation's best coming out of high school up in, out of Maryland. And you you had him just doing kickoffs, and he boots it consistently through the end zone, like every single time. And the only time he doesn't is because there's a strategy behind it because they're trying to pin them inside the 20. They want the return on and to get down there to make the tackle. I, I, I guess like we'll find out when he kicks a longer field goal of 40 plus yards if there's accuracy issues. I didn't I, I don't know. It to me it seemed pretty fundamental 
uh, it would be, I, I'd be curious to hear Allie Peak's thoughts, uh, Eric Wilbur's thoughts. I know he, like we talked about that with her when she was on the show. If, if there's a little bit more fundamentals there, but it just seems like he knows what he's doing. And I think it's, I'm glad we made the change and I'll credit the coaching staff for doing it. Two for two and extra points made the 29 yard field goal to extend it to a three score game in the second half, you know, so I, I I'll give him the credit there. I agree on uh, Jeremy Crosshaw. It is concerning. I will give him the benefit of the doubt because he was solid his first two years. So I'm the level he was uh, has played at in the past. We'll let him get that corrected. But if this continues to become a trend where we're where we're sporting, you know, bad fields to, to teams and it hurts us in a big game. Then that's when it becomes a liability. We're not quite there yet, but it is something to monitor because now we have two data points in two games where he shanked a punt in pretty bad, uh, epic proportion. Coaching. Coaching, I'll give a B plus. I They had a solid game plan. They knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to control the clock. They wanted to run the football. They wanted to be efficient on offense and then play lights out defense. They did it. They controlled the line of scrimmage. They were the more physical football team because of the way they game plan. And the coaching staff deserves credit. They they continue to make changes to the depth chart. We, this week it was the special teams in the kicking game. We saw more of Devin Moore out there, out on the corner spot, where he clearly, in my mind, maybe even the best corner on the team. I've been fairly disappointed, actually, in the play of Jason Marshall thus far this year. I think he is not playing up to the to the level of a five-star out of high school when we got him. Like to see more of him, especially if this is his money year. We're starting to see just guys get put in positions that are the best players. And it's a credit to the coaching staff for doing that. They're trusting a guy like Eugene Wilson for the, like Eugene Wilson got the ball. How many times to start the game? And they're trusting freshmen. They, they put guy, they put the best players in the best position to succeed. So the coaching staff deserves credit for that. And, that's why we're sitting here two and one tonight celebrating a big win over a rival in Tennessee. So coaching staff deserves credit. They get a B plus overall. I'm going to give this an a minus performance for the Gators. You beat a rival, you do it in, I think pretty dominating fashion the way we did. I mean, and it was a what 13 point game, but Florida dominated this game. There was never a point where I was truly that concerned. If had Tennessee had another deep ball where it was a one score game at the end, then yeah, different story, but Florida really controlled this game. They controlled the clock. Florida dominated, and it was a solid performance, one that we've been waiting for for a long time, and we finally got it in the swamp this past Saturday night. So, Neil, that about does it. It's a huge win. Everything is going to be a little bit better tomorrow when we all go to work, and then as we go to work throughout this week, and we can't wait to be back later this week to preview the Charlotte game, to have Dustin back on as he gives us a model update to see where this team is going. And where the rest of college football is in his newly released top 25. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be able to do this and recap this pod and and uh, this game. So hopefully there's more of this to come as the season progresses. Are we just not going to talk about the fight at the end? Like, I oh, mean, we, I mean, yes. we, I feel like we, we got to give gotta, that at we, least a, a cursory mention. We got to do that. We definitely got to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I got to say that was. Probably one of the most bizarre two minutes ending to a game that I've ever seen, you know, because you had the fan jump on the field as Tennessee was right about to go for it on fourth down to end the game. 
then, you know, he kind of doesn't really put up much of a fight. He ended up in the Alachua County Jail. There's actually screenshots of him in the Alachua County Jail asking for people to get to bail him out, which I think is hilarious. And then, of course, you've got the Florida's makes a stop. And then you, you have Josh Heupel, Bush League move, calling the timeout. And then they cheap shot Graham Mertz when he does take the knee. And I don't, I don't want to hear from him about how, like, oh, the guy's dancing around. Like, he was going to a knee. He was going down. There was going to be a little bit of time left on the clock. It, it was total Bush League what they did. And I all actually, four, by the way, all four Tennessee to take a knee on their final snap of the game. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, I, and I think they were going to have a punter actually take the snap and do it. I think Hypo realized what, you know, just an asshat he was in that moment and was just like, just take the knee, let's go. But it's just so dumb. It was such a Bush League move by him to do that. And I, I respect our teammates for coming to the defense of Graham Mertz because if they didn't, I would have thought less of them. So I had no problem with Mascua squaring up, ready to, to you know, throw a guy down. Our guys coming to the defense. That was exactly what you expect from guys that love each other, that play for each other, that'll do anything for each other. So I think they almost, it's a moment that kind of galvanized the team even a little bit more in that moment ugly ending a bizarre ending in the last two minutes there but i am proud of the fact that our guys came to defensive grammars yeah i mean it, it happened right in front of me i was i i was at the about the 15 20 yard line tennessee fans were getting mouthy so i was kind of tauntingly singing rocky top to send them on their way and then the next thing i know it, it looked like a targeting at first. Like it looked like there was helmet helmet contact, but even beside that he was going down and there's full contact that's delivered from a defender to Graham Mertz as he's about to just shut it down and call it a night. And then the, it just, it chaos erupts and Mascua obviously putting the fists up like, yeah, you want to go and he did Kamal Haddon, by the way, who, did not put up much of a fight in his attempt to tackle Trevor Etienne, saving his fight for the wrong moment later in the game, trying or when the game's already over to try to you know, deliver a late hit on Graham Mertz to try to make some kind of impact uh, in the game. But yeah, I mean, that, that was just a, a strange, strange ending to the ball game. But, you know, Tennessee obviously has not won the swamp in over 7,300 days, and now it's going to be 700 more. So obviously there are some frustrations there. No one on the Tennessee team was born the last time that they won in the swamp. Or, or, or sorry, I should say the next time they come to the swamp, no one on their team will be, have been born the last time they won in the swamp. That is an absolutely insane statistic florida has been terrible in some of those years chris 2013 they're four and eight 2017 they're four and seven 2021 they have a losing record and they blow tennessee out it's just absolutely unbelievable how florida has dominated tennessee in the swamp so maybe some of those frustrations kind of coming out there but regardless good old rocky top rocky top tennessee nope none of that you're going home losers once again and it's just a great feeling it is a great feeling. Well, from all of us here at the In All Kinds Weather Forecast, we are excited to have brought you this celebration of a huge win over a rival once again. That is just the standard against Tennessee. Rocky Top, you'll always be the Gators' mid-September feast. 
Good old Rocky Top. And farewell to the SEC East or some such variation of it. It's just fun, man. It's it's fun beating a rival. It's fun to be excited about the Florida Gators again. That's the bottom line. We're excited about the Florida Gators football program again, and that feels good. Yep. Well, from all of us here at the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast, I was your co-host, your host, Chris Yanes, alongside my co-host, Neil Shulman. Make sure to leave us a like, a review, and subscribe to our channel. We can't wait to see you again. Thanks again for joining in, and go Gators.